Have you noticed that politicians struggle to enact the things they run on? That regardless of who wins elections, lawmakers find they cannot pass whatever legislation they like. They find themselves bound by what is popular, or at least their sense of it. They can only act with a narrow set of ideas, and that range is called the Overton Window. And on the Overton Window podcast, we look at issues around the country, and we talk to people who change what is politically possible. Today, uh, I'm really happy to have George Will. Uh, persuasion is a powerful force in politics. Change enough people's minds, and you can change what is politically possible. Or do you? There's no one who I found to be more persuasive than my guest, George Will. He's been writing political columns and commentary for nearly 50 years, and reading what he wrote is what got me interested in politics. So I was really happy to get him on, and I'm curious to see what he does and what influence he thinks he's had. George, welcome to the podcast. I'm glad to be with you. Actually, more than 50 years. Oh, just, okay. Yeah, well, I, I'll, have to, I'll have to talk to you know started, my, my research skills. I started in 73. The Washington Post says I started in 74 because that's when I started with the Post. But I, for a year before that, I was a National Review columnist. Minor, minor matter. Let's go on to... <laughs> Uh, well, I mean, first off, I, I never pass up a chance to interview another Illinois boy when I can uh, when I can uh, get the chance to do so. So I think, you know, 100 years from now, George, you know, people are going to be talking about a couple of guys from rural Illinois. And, you know, that's going to be you, of course. It's going to be Ronald Reagan and it's going to be Jarrett Scora. So I just wanted to, you know, put us in proper uh, context. Um, so first off, just what is the point of your job? It's enormous fun. So I, I, to me, that's a, a necessary and almost a sufficient reason for doing it. It is a, a function of public commentary is to not to tell people what to think, but to show them how one person thinks. And in my case, it is to try and connect basic principles to daily events. Uh, the name for that is prudence. Prudence is taking crystalline, pure principles and applying them to untidy reality. I'm a lapsed professor of political philosophy, long lapsed, I must say. I, I went to Princeton, got a PhD, and intended to teach and briefly did at Michigan State and at the University of Toronto. And I, I, I think I'm still doing what I trained to do. That is to say there, there are principles at stake in most uh, public actions. We ought to know what they are and how far they should be uh, uh, pushed and how prudently they can be applied. And that's, that's how I see my job. Wow. Well, you're, you're hitting a lot of uh, the notes of my life. Cause uh, like I said, I grew up in Illinois as well. I know you, you grew up in, in Champaign. I married a girl from Princeton, New Jersey, um, has some family that, that are Princeton grads. Um, and of course, I'm, I'm in Michigan now at, at the Mackinac Center. So I, I didn't realize the uh, Michigan State connection. Um, so I grew up, like I said, I grew up in Sandwich, Illinois, which is a small town up near Aurora. Um, and my parents were teachers and my dad also worked construction. And they were, you know, they were somewhat interested in politics, but it wasn't a major thing for our for our family. I really got and my dad wasn't, you know, this big intellectual reader that had had books around, but he had three sons that all work kind of in, um, you know, as intellectuals in the think tank world and the public policy world in some, in some sense. Um, and I really got interested because he was a big reader of newspapers. We got three newspapers, 
two that were daily. Um, and that kind of introduced me to your writing um, and Thomas Sowell, who were probably the two people that spoke at least the most to me. And so you, you've really been interested in, in persuasion. You talk about what, what your job is. When you're writing, are you looking to persuade people on public policy? Are you just doing kind of what you're interested in and, that, and that's what your, your work is? Or do you spend a lot of time actually trying to persuade your audience? I am trying to persuade my audience. But first, before I do that, I'm trying in some ways to clarify my own thinking. Uh, someone once asked me what I thought about a particular issue, and I said, I don't know. I haven't written about it yet. Because the, the process of writing, which involves research and a lot of reading, I suppose if someone said, what do you do, Mr. Will? I'd say I'm a writer, but I'm actually a reader. I spend more time reading than writing. Uh, one of the nicer compliments I've ever received was from someone who uh, had been a, a fact checker at the Washington Post, and she had done my columns. And then she started to do my columns, and she said, until I started to, to fact check in on your columns, I had no idea how many facts there were in them. <laughs> They appear on the Washington Post website under opinions, and, and they are uh, expressing my opinions. But I like to think they're about 80 to 90 percent information and that the opinion flows out of the information and, and that the information isn't just dragged in to support the opinion. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I write more than I used to about courts and court cases, partly because the Supreme Court is so interesting. It's so interesting because it's the one place in government where people actually have to reason in public and, and do it carefully. And uh, there are no dummies on the Supreme Court. Some are better than others, but they're, they're all uh, competent reasoning people, and that makes it exciting. And uh, so much of our, our arguments in America wind up turned into, into legal arguments and taken to courts. So yes, I am trying to persuade people. Uh, and, and I'm a conservative. So what's that mean? As I said in my book, the conservative sensibility, an American conservative, and the adjective does a lot of work in that phrase, an American conservative wants to conserve the American founding, which is why I, I said also in that book, an American conservative wants to conserve classic liberalism, natural rights, limited government, individualism. Uh, I know that the terms liberal and conservative are hopelessly confused in, in the United States, and it's too late to rescue them from this confusion. So I'm, I'm perfectly glad to be called a conservative on that understanding that I'm trying to conserve what Madison and Jefferson and Hamilton and the rest uh, bequeaths to us. Yeah, I've been um, doing a reading some Edmund Burke. Um, I'm sorry. Um, we've been reading some Edmund Burke, but also some Russell Kirk, um, who's writing a lot about Burke and, and others. And yeah, the, uh, the differences kind of in the American conservative and the English or European conservative histories, um, but yeah, nowadays, I don't think, unfortunately, too many people are, are they're mixing up a lot of those terms and, and what's happening. Um, well, thanks. If I could just say that, yeah. first of all, Russell Kirk, of course, the good Michigander. Yeah. Um, the European conservatism uh, is 
I'd say tainted with, but comes out of blood and soil, throne and altar, uh, respect for hierarchy and social stability. When conservatism crossed the Atlantic, it found a people, uh, Americans who were enamored of change, of churning, of, right. of uh, a non, non-hierarchical society. It's been said that the story of the Bible reduced to one sentence is God created men and women and promptly lost control of events. And Americans are like that. They don't want events controlled other than by the spontaneous order of a cooperative society of individuals freely contracting and cooperating with one another. So whereas Europeans like hierarchy and stability, Americans like churning and dynamism. I have been, um, you know, obviously a regular reader of your column. And, and it's similar to, I think I feel reading your column, how you talk about reading the courts, which is I'm really, um, and I don't know if I'm just getting older and, and you know, I've, I've read nostalgia is the most powerful drug. So I try to resist that. Um, but I don't know if it's because I'm older and I'm thinking everything's getting worse in terms of this one area. But a lot of writers are, they're not really seeking to persuade. They're writing, you, you know, it's very predictable. You know what they're going to say. They're not, um, one of my colleagues, uh, James Homan, um, who normally does the podcast, he talks about like, that, the only way you're going to persuade is if you accurately represent your opponent's views and they see that and they say, yeah, that is kind of what I say. And now they're trying to refute that. And I think you do a good, a good job of that. And the courts have to do that. I mean, that, that's their job. Um, do you think opinion writing has changed in that sense? Are, were people better about accurately representing the point of view of their colleagues? And has that changed over time or not? I think uh, opinion journalism has partaken of the general decay of journalism in the last 10 years, and particularly in the last uh, six or so years. Uh, a lot of opinion journalists subscribe to the idea that became popular among journalists that because of Donald Trump, the nation was in a, a, to use the word, the overused word of the day, existential crisis, that American democracy was hanging by a thread, that they were the thread, and that uh, therefore they they were on a democracy-saving mission and could be partisan and I'm frankly to say sort of hysterical at all times. Mm-hmm. The the temptation, and it's a it's a ruinous one for someone who writes opinion journalism, is to give in to confirmation bias and to reinforce the confirmation bias of its readers. That that is, confirmation bias is when you expose yourself only to comfortable opinions, only to those that confirm what you already believe. That's that's. And, and part of the trouble in the United States today is that everyone is hunkered down in their own intellectual silos with no communication uh, w- with people who've chosen different silos. So it's, it's extremely important to, to understand that you're, you're not going to dazzle the unconverted simply by enunciating a principle. Not all principles are, to use Jefferson's language, self-evident. What Jefferson meant by that, I think, is uh, he said, we hold these truths to be self-evident. Those are truths that, that are evident to 
any mind not clouded by superstition. There are such things. One of them is that all men are created equal. Mm -hmm. But beyond that, uh, judicial restraint, judicial engagement, uh, free speech, establishment of religion, all the rest uh, have to be argued about. And uh, argument is the great source of political power. Uh, long ago, long before most of your listeners were, pay were listening and paying attention, uh, at about the time Jack Kennedy became president, a political scientist, uh, Robert Neust Richard Neustadt, I believe it was, at uh, Harvard, wrote a book on presidential power in which he argued that the presidency is actually institutionally not very powerful. Uh, Article 2 of the Constitution is very spare in its language, and basically it says the president shall take care that the laws are faithfully executed. Not much. Most of Article 2 is about how to... Uh, select and, if necessary, remove the president. Uh, what the president has, said Neustadt, is the power to persuade. Now, that power has grown enormously in our time because of modern means of communication. First radio, then broadcasting, now social media. So that, that, that's a... Neustadt would have said... That's all. the only power the president has that's significant is the power to persuade. I think we now say that's a pretty awesome power, but it still comes down to, at some point, reasoning yeah. and, and, reason, and respecting your listeners. Yeah. And, so, and on that point and for, for your job, so how do you judge um, whether your articles or your, your job in general, you give a lot of speeches um, uh, as well. Um, how do you judge whether you're accomplishing what you're trying to accomplish? That's an excellent question. I, the curious osmosis by which a nation, continental nation of 332 million people makes up its mind is a mystery to me. And the one thing I know about it is that it's slow uh, and it's a meandering, winding path uh, as, the, as the public makes up its mind. And it ought to be. Really, uh, although I try to be one of the gusts of wind that tries to blow things about, we really don't want to live in a country in which uh, vast numbers of people are blown about by uh, gusts of opinion, columns, cable television, talk radio, whatever. We, we, we just don't. Uh, we want a more stable uh, polity, in my judgment. I've written now approaching, maybe I'm past, but certainly approaching 6,000 columns in the last half century. Hmm. <laughs> the one that uh, caused the most uproar was probably when I denounced people wearing too many, wearing denim too much. <laughs> you can write about nuclear war and people will yawn, touch well, who, their blood. And who was it? Was that the, the smaller the issue, the more passionate people are about it? Um, yeah, well, it's a, it's a, that's a, a version of what's been said about academic politics. Right. That the, yeah. The bitterness is inversely proportional to the stakes. Right. Uh, but I think cumulatively over time, you develop readers. P people say, "Well, I'll read Will because I like the play, the way his mind plays across the landscape," and you develop a trust. Now, I'm well aware that most Americans don't read newspapers. 
most who read newspapers don't read the op-ed pages. And by now, thanks to the rapidly changing technological landscape of journalism, I know that the vast majority of my readers are probably online. But the the good side of that, which might sound like bad news, the good news is that I'm writing to a self-selected, intellectually upscale audience, to be blunt about it. These are people who choose to seek out people like me. Mm-hmm. And they do so because they're interested in what I write about. And they're interested, therefore, because they have a, a, a mental pantry furnished with uh, ideas and information. It makes it much easier to write because you don't have to invent the wheel every time you, you essay uh, a 750 word column. You have to, you can be able to assume certain yeah. things that they understand the separation of powers, that they understand uh, what the Fed does and doesn't do, things like that. Yeah, well, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm interested too in, you know, Thomas Sowell talks about intellectuals a lot. And so, but also just, this is the Overton Window podcast. We're, the Overton Window is this idea of how ideas come into being and how they change and how people change their views. Uh, you know, I'm, I work in public policy, so I'm around a lot of people with uh, a lot of high knowledge, similar to what you're talking about, but that, that filters down to some extent. And I love being in situations where you're outside that bubble, where you kind of get, well, what, what do regular people, for lack of better word, how do they change their mind on things or how do they even hear about these issues? So I'm on, you know, I have a 10 year old in Little League. I'm on the Little League board. I'm in a church Bible study. I'm in a lot of these groups in the Midwest where people have no idea what I do. And I'm very interested in how they come, you know, hearing about things from them uh, and how they form an opinion on something. Do you get in situations like that where you're hearing from someone that might not know who you are or what you do and they're working out how they've heard about some issue that you know a lot about? how do, how do how do these things filter down? Yes, it's fascinating to, because generally we think, and generally it's probably true, that communication is from the top down in society. That is, that a small coterie of people who deal with these things, you're part of that coterie, uh, tries to communicate and it trickles down to other people. But it's very important occasionally that, that things trickle up to understand how the public mind is formed. I, I love it. We're always in Washington. Someone will say, or they'll do a poll and say, only 18% of Americans uh, support such and such bill. Yeah, 18% of Americans don't know there are two houses of Congress, probably. I mean, they're not paying attention to this. They're busy cleaning the gutters, fixing the storm windows, and raising children. And a lot of Americans understand that they don't know the theory, but they understand what sociologists call rational ignorance, that it's too much trouble for all the good you can do to be up to speed all the time on the velocity of money and the the Federal Reserve's Open Market Committee and all the rest. So they, they, they want efficient ways to be brought up to speed. And I like to think on occasion that, that my columns can do that. Yeah, no, I think that's a great great way to put it. Um, so I, I get annoyed often when people try to apply this concept of the Overton window outside of public policy. 
Um, but I can't resist um, because, you know, I know you're a big baseball guy. I'm a big baseball guy. I'm a huge uh, Chicago Cubs fan. Um, like I, I have two sons. They're huge into baseball. We're kind of in that mix. And, you know, we, in the past few years, we've kind of seen these changes within baseball that I would just say, are they, are they kind of shifting the Overton window baseball? Obviously it's very traditional. You've operated with a lot of the same rules. It's probably changed less than most, almost any other sport. And yet, you know, we've got the banning of the shift. We have the pitch clock. We have challenges. We may not see human umpires, you know, 10 years from now. And I was just interested in, you know, we don't have to get your, all your opinions and thoughts on those. um, But but just how did the Overton window shift on baseball to begin just allowing those changes that would have been completely unheard of a decade ago, much less before that? Baseball had a, had a problem. It, it had lost on an annual basis 7 million fans uh, a year, down 7 million fans of annual attendance. And it was clear why. Uh, the games were getting longer and the action in the games was getting more rare which is a terrible recipe for something in the entertainment business. And even those who are listening to us talk today who are not interested in baseball should pay attention because what baseball demonstrated is that something in America can be fixed. Mm -hmm. Uh, Baseball fixed itself. Uh, It said, okay, we're going to have the ball put in play more. And the ball's going to be put in play by a pitch clock that makes people move along and makes it harder for pitchers to recuperate between maximum effort so they won't simply try and overwhelm us with velocity. We're going to ban the shift so that it will require athleticism to get to the ball. You won't pre-position yourself for where the ball is coming. Uh, a rational approach to a discernible problem. And and what made it particularly interesting was baseball's problem was produced by everyone in baseball, from management to the players to the front offices, everyone in baseball behaving reasonably on the basis of abundant, accurate information. Mm -hmm. Analytics is the the word baseball prefers. That's a fancy way of saying information Mm -hmm. about spin rates and launch angles and of batters and who has a tendency to hit where. So uh, baseball is a small universe, a rule-bound universe, and it's easier to change than society. But uh, this is an example of how you change society. Define the problem accurately, and then, like good Madisonians, change the incentives. Right. And, and when, you, when, when you do that, uh, good things can happen. All right. Um. So back on the public policy um, question, I always like to talk when I'm when I'm interviewing people in, in this realm. But do you have a major policy issue that you've changed your mind on over over the years? Yes, a, a dramatic change. Uh, only one real dramatic change. Uh, I'll give you a minor one and then the major one. A minor one is I, I used to be opposed to term limits. I'm not anymore. I'm for term limits in Congress. I understand the costs of that that uh, you're, you, you jeopardize the institutional memory of legislatures and all the rest. But I think I see no other way to have a political class that will think of the next generation rather than the next election. That's the minor change. The major change is on the role of courts. I used to be a Holmesian or uh, an adherent of 
the most famous recent homes in my good friend, Robert Bork, the late Robert Bork. Uh, he, he said, and I for a long time said that majority should have their way. That uh, that's what it means to be a democracy and courts should by and large be deferential to what majorities want. I no longer believe that. You mentioned I'm from central Illinois, <clears throat> from Champaign. According to local lore, it was in the Champaign County Courthouse that a prosperous traveling railroad lawyer named Abraham Lincoln learned in, 19, in 1854 that Illinois Senator uh, Stephen Douglas had succeeded in passing the Kansas-Nebraska Act. The point of which was to solve a problem. The problem was, what should policy be about slavery in the territories? Douglas's solution was popular sovereignty. Vote slavery up, vote slavery down. That's a matter of moral indifference because the morally significant thing is that majorities should rule. Mm -hmm. Lincoln's ascent to greatness began with his implacable, canny recoil against that doctrine. He said, no, America is not about a process, majority rule. It's about a condition, liberty. And my changed view of courts is, uh, is what's now called judicial engagement, that the judiciary has an enormous role. It cannot delegate to anyone else to supervise the excesses of democracy, to make sure that uh, majorities don't have their way where they shouldn't have their way. A written constitution is a counter-majoritarian instrument. First Amendment says... Congress shall make no law abridging freedom of speech. It doesn't say Congress shall make no law abridging freedom of speech unless a lot of people really want to. Mm -hmm. It's not what it says. It says, nope, can't, done. We've closed that question. There is such a thing as closed questions in an open society. Ours is an open society, but we've, we've said certain things are not going to happen. That's one of them. Yeah, and, the, and getting on the, the Lincoln-Douglas Lincoln debates, you know, it— it's they had these competing views. Probably most of the regular citizens, you know, they had opinions on slavery, but they probably didn't have defined opinions on how to handle it. And what did they do? They barnstormed around Illinois and had a big, wide open debate. And it was amazing the you know the number of people that went out to those for these dense, intellectual, down in the weeds um, arguments. Um, it was kind well, of you know, we're, we're talking today about persuasion. Think about the Lincoln-Douglas debate. When we have debates now with our candidates, right. one will say, what is the meaning of life? What, define justice. You have a minute. Yeah. <laughs> when Lincoln and Douglas debated, one would start off and talk for an hour. The second would talk for an hour and a half. And then the man who'd started would get his remaining 30 minutes. That's a debate. That's how persuasion should go. Yeah. And, you know, they're developing new arguments again and again and again along along the, the route. All right. Well, we're 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 wrapping up our time here. I wanted to finish up. Um, do you think that there's do you think you've changed what is politically possible on any issue or move the Overton window in, in some way on a view? I've noticed, like you mentioned, you, you write a lot on the courts. Um, but on, on, you know, over your more than 50 year history of writing, are there some ideas you, you would like to take credit for you've, you've helped introduce or help move the Overton window on significantly? 
I like to think that I have helped people be a little more skeptical about the proper scope and actual competence of government, a little more appreciative of the knowledge problem that government has. We're, we're right now under Mr. Biden, we're going into industrial policy. The government's going to plan whole sectors of the economy. The government has really turned the automobile industry into a subsidiary of the government and a public utility. Uh, conservatism teaches uh, humility about the ability to know the complexities of a society, to avoid the law of unintended consequences, which is that when you intervene with political power in a complex society, the unintended consequences are apt to be larger than and contrary to the intended consequences. So it, I, I guess I'd say if I've accomplished anything at all, it is to perhaps help a number of people have a kind of informed skepticism, uh, not a jaundiced view of public life. I, I don't have a jaundiced view of public life, but skepticism about the capacity or the desirability of government to uh, organize, control, and run complex systems. All right. Well, thank you, George, um, for those views, and, and we appreciate you taking the time today. I enjoyed being with you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Overton Window, a podcast from the Mackinac Center. Please subscribe and rate. For more, check us out at www.mackinaw.org. That's Mackinac with a C, like the island.